Hey friends, Nina here. You might be hearing some unusual ads before an episode of Already Gone. Apologies, I'm doing my best to weed out political advertisements right now, but sometimes our ad provider is tricked by the advertiser and these ads slip through, so please bear with us as we get through another hectic election season. As always, I do appreciate you listening. And now, on with the show. This week is the second of two summer vacation stories on Already Gone. In our last episode, we discussed the death of Florence Unger. Flo was vacationing with her husband and children when she fell or was pushed to her death. This week, we're headed back up north, but we're on the other side of the state. The setting of today's story is Lake Huron. Now, Huron is my favorite of the Great Lakes, not because it's the biggest, not because it's the most beautiful, but it's where I've spent the most time. When I was a tween and teen, my parents sent me to a summer camp on Lake Huron. The camp was just north of Lexington, and each summer I'd spend a few weeks there. In the afternoon, when the sun was at its hottest, we would be in the water, swimming, floating, and searching for the plentiful Petoskey stones that littered the floor of the lake. Every gorgeous sunrise, long afternoons in the water, evenings around a bonfire in the sand, with the soft rolling waves of the lake as our background, I have so many good memories of Lake Huron. And now, if I really think about it, I can feel the bracing cold water on my skin. And to be honest, I miss Lake Huron. Lake Huron, she has her own stories and her own secrets, and today, we're going to explore one of them. So come with me to August 10th, 2005, when a young couple sets out on a journey across Lake Huron, a voyage from which they will never return. Lana Stempion, she didn't just have a movie star name, she had the brains and the looks to go along with it. Born in 1969 to parents Edward and Carol, her father was a former U.S. Coast Guard officer. And people liked Lana. She grew up in a close-knit extended family. Her cousin, Tammy, she said people were drawn to Lana. When the cousins went to the bar, Lana never had to pay for her own drinks. And it wasn't just because Lana was pretty. She had an energy about her, something that really drew people in. And when Lana finished high school, she went off to college. And in between semesters, she started modeling. She worked the auto show circuit for several years, traveling, modeling, and enjoying her young life. Eventually, she decided to focus on her brains instead of her looks, and set her sights on being a lawyer. She turned her focus back to school and earned her degree. She passed the bar and took a job as an attorney with the city of Detroit. One of the first big purchases she made as a professional woman was to buy her boat, a 27-foot Wellcraft cabin cruiser. She christened the boat Seas Life, that's S-E-A-S-L-I-F-E, and whenever Lana had free time or a long weekend, you would find her out on the boat. With her father being a former coastie, Lana spent plenty of time on the water growing up. She was a skilled swimmer, an accomplished water skier, 
and she knew the ins and outs of boating from decades of experience on the water. It was about 2003 when Lana met Chuck Rutherford. He was two years her junior and worked in the county prosecutor's office in Detroit. Charles Rutherford Jr., known as Chuck, he grew up in Gross Point Park. His father, Charles, was also an attorney. Chuck was known to be a happy-go-lucky guy, and his demeanor, along with his colorful socks and neckties, well, it helped him stand out from the rest of the team at the prosecutor's office. Chuck had designs on starting his own firm, heading out on his own. And when he met Lana, the two, well, they hit it off, and eventually Lana moved into his Gross Point Farms home. When asked about their relationship, friends would say that Chuck was not Lana's usual type, but the two seemed to go well together, and he was clearly taken with Lana. And while Chuck grew up in Gross Point Park, living very close to the water, he was not as comfortable on the water as Lana. Wanting to please her, and to of course spend time with his girlfriend, he frequently joined her on Sea's Life for outings and trips. Lana was happy to teach Chuck how to operate and maintain the boat. She wanted him to enjoy their time on the water and to enjoy it safely. When the summer of 2005 came around, Chuck and Lana had been together about two years and living together in Chuck's home for about a year. Their relationship seemed both serious and solid. In July, Lana began planning a weekend boating trip for the couple. They would leave her parents' place in Bell River, Ontario, and motor up Lake Huron toward Mackinac Island. The trip would take about a day and a half. Then they could spend time on Mackinac before returning home. And a quick side note here for those of you who aren't familiar with the international border between Michigan and Ontario, the city of Detroit is directly across the Detroit River from the city of Windsor in Ontario, Canada. The countries are separated by the river, a distance of about one mile. You can easily see Windsor from the Detroit side and vice versa. Having grown up in the area, particularly in the days before 9-11, heading to Windsor for lunch, to go shopping, or to visit their parks, well, it just wasn't a big deal. And the crossings might add an extra 15 or 20 minutes to your trip. Not like today, when you can be delayed for an hour or more as you pass between the countries. At the time of this case, I believe that Lana's parents had a place in Bell River, Ontario, where they kept their boats. And this isn't uncommon. It's generally, because of the exchange rate, less expensive to get marina space in Canada than it is in Michigan. Also, Mackinac Island, their intended destination for their long weekend trip. Mackinac is located just northeast of the northern tip of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, and you can only access Mackinac Island by plane or by boat. A trip through Lake Huron to visit Mackinac Island is not unusual in any way. It was Wednesday, August 10th, 2005, when Lana and Chuck departed for Mackinac Island. Lana checked the weather and realized that rain was forecast, so she planned for them to depart early in the day so they'd miss the weather. She bid her parents farewell, promising to check in with them each night of the trip. The route they needed to take on Sea's Life had them traveling across Lake St. Clair into the St. Clair River to Lake Huron. They would motor within sight of shore as they headed north and the night of August 10th, they docked in Oscoda. Oscoda is about the halfway point of their journey, and when they docked, they met the people in the next boat. 
This couple was headed into town for dinner, and they invited Chuck and Lana to join them. So the four headed to the Osabal Inn for a meal. The couple would report that Chuck and Lana seemed happy, if a bit tired from their travels. But nothing concerning or unusual happened during their time together. As promised, Lana phoned her parents and let them know they'd made it to Oscoda for the night, and that they'd be heading out bright and early the next morning. True to her word, at 7 a.m. on August 11th, Chuck and Lana were ready to leave Oscoda, heading north for the second and final leg of their journey. They aren't going to make it to Mackinac Island. But they don't know that. Not yet. The morning of Thursday, August 11th, Lana and Chuck are up early and ready to continue their journey north. It appears they left Oscoda by 7.30 that morning. Lana called her folks around noon that day, telling them they were a good two or three hours away from Mackinac. She told her father, quote, Everything's going good, Dad. And it was 12.30 when C's life and her two passengers arrived at Presqu'ile. They were now halfway between Oscoda, where they'd stop for the night, and Mackinac Island. While they were filling up, the attendant, a man named Gene, he talked briefly with the couple, who seemed happy and were chatting with him. He said they joked about who should pay to fill up the boat's gas tank. And listeners, from what I can tell, the boat had a tank of at least 100 gallons, so a fill-up would be costly. At 1.45 p.m., Lana used her cell phone to place another call. This time she phoned her aunt, Pat. Pat would later tell authorities that Lana was, quote, in very good spirits. But she was grumbling about the rough waters they'd come across. This will be the last contact that Chuck or Lana have with friends and family before they disappear. The couple does not arrive at Mackinac Island that evening as planned. And when C's life doesn't appear and Lana isn't answering her phone, her father, Edward Stempion, he calls the Coast Guard and advises them of the missing craft. Not long after Stempion reported C's life and her occupants missing, a boater came across Lana's boat about 11 miles northeast of Mackinac. The boat was, quote, way off course, idling in neutral, stereo still playing, just adrift in the lake. And I want to pause here and clarify something about the Great Lakes. If you aren't familiar with them, you may not realize just how big they are. They're huge. Um, I want you to understand the size and the scale of the lakes. I went to our friends at Wikipedia for some statistics about Lake Huron. Huron is the second largest of the Great Lakes, right behind Lake Superior. It is the third largest freshwater lake on the planet. It is over 300 kilometers long and contains approximately 30,000 islands. So please, keep the size and the magnitude of the lake in your mind as we go forward in the story. The man who spotted Sea's life, he was in his own boat, and he had a 52-foot cruiser making his boat nearly twice the size of the craft that Chuck and Lana traveled in, and his boat was struggling in the waves and the weather. He described the conditions as five-foot seas and said, quote, The boat was bobbing around like a cork, and I made the remark that, boy, there's a brave soul out here in that size boat. I think that boat's in trouble. And he was right. There was trouble on Sea's life. Both of her occupants were gone. He made a note that drifting 30 to 40 feet from C's life was a set of blue bumpers. 
And Lana's family will later point out that C's life had white bumpers, not blue ones. They weren't sure where these bumpers came from, and we're going to come back to the blue bumpers a little later in the story, so make a note of them. So the guy in the 52-foot boat, he radioed the Coast Guard station in St. Ignace. Coasties arrived quickly and hailed C's life using their bullhorn. When they received no response, they board the ship and find her empty. A search is started right away. And if you remember the Edmund Fitzgerald episode and how difficult that search was because of blustery winter weather, this was the opposite situation. The weather's pretty good, there's plenty of sunshine, it's August, the temperatures are good for searching, and the Coast Guard will search 1,600 square miles. And Lana's friends and family, they are also searching. They chartered a plane and a helicopter to search the area by air. Others set out in boats and on jet skis looking for some sign of the couple. Meanwhile, a team of volunteers, they are peppering local communities with flyers for Lana and Chuck because surely someone has seen them. Lana's family even used the sea's life to motor around and search for the missing couple. Lana Stempion, a young woman who grew up on the water, the daughter of a former Coast Guard officer, her family found it hard to believe that something went wrong on the lake. They expected to find her, maybe in the water clinging to a life raft, or maybe she'd made it to one of the many islands that dot Lake Huron. It wasn't long before the Michigan State Police became involved in the investigation. They started interviewing friends and family of the couple. Was there a reason for them to go missing? Were they not getting along? Was there tension in the relationship? Do you know of anyone who might have had a grudge against them? According to a Dateline episode about this case, there were few reasons for the couple to go missing. The boat did not show signs of foul play. There was no sign of damage. It did not appear there had been a struggle. The items that remained on board the ship pointed to the fact that there was no robbery. In addition to finding the couple's cellular phones, which were in fine working order, they also found their wallets on the boat, and those wallets contained cash. Days passed, and as so often happens with a situation like this, people began to speculate. Maybe they decided to go for a swim. Well, that doesn't make sense. The weather wasn't that warm. And speaking from experience, I can tell you, Huron is a cold lake. Detective Sexton of the Michigan State Police, he pointed out that C's life had a swim ladder and it was still up. This makes it unlikely that anyone opted for a swim from the boat. C's life was adrift with no anchor cast. Lana's dad said, there is no way she jumped off that boat. I know that for a fact. She knew the first thing you do is throw the anchor out, then you jump in the water. But you don't jump in the water and then swim after the boat. Others pointed to an empty bottle of vodka. Maybe they'd gotten drunk and made poor choices. But her friends were quick to put a stop to that theory, saying that if Lana was drinking on her boat, it would happen when the boat was docked, not in the middle of a trip. Lana correctly viewed drinking while operating a boat as dangerous, risky behavior, behavior that she did not engage in. The air and land searches ground to a halt. There was no sight or sign of Lana and Chuck. Lana's father, Edward, was scheduled for heart surgery on August 16th, and when Lana did not appear in time for the surgery, her loved ones realized that she wasn't coming home, not on her own. She never would have missed her father's surgery. 
not if she had a choice. August 24th, 2005. A Huron Beach resident spots something in the water and goes out to investigate. What she finds is the nude body of Lana Stempion. Lana is still wearing her necklace, ring, and an Omega watch. Discovery of her nude remains has investigators thinking that Lana must have gone skinny dipping in Lake Huron, and then things went very wrong, leading to her death. Her family disputed this theory. The watch Lana wore was an expensive piece, water-resistant but not waterproof. She would not have risked damaging it by wearing it into the water. An autopsy is performed. Remember, she's been in the water for approximately 14 days, and her remains show no sign of pre-mortem trauma, so it is assumed that she died by drowning. And we can pause here to note that we don't know if there was post-mortem trauma because it's not spelled out for us. Again, we hear from Michigan State Police Detective Sexton, who says that foul play cannot be ruled out. There is no evidence of foul play, so it's all a speculation. He just doesn't know. He can't say for certain. When toxicology results come back, Lana's body showed high levels of carbon monoxide in her system. Perhaps she was swimming off the back of the boat with the motor running and was overcome by fumes. Any seasoned boater will tell you it's not safe to swim next to a boat with a running motor, so that scenario seems unlikely. Tox reports also showed a very low level of alcohol in her system. This puts the kibosh on the theory that she got drunk and fell or was swept overboard due to intoxication. Then, speculation began that somehow carbon monoxide or other fumes got inside the cabin. All right, if that happened, did Lana then stumble out of the cabin into the fresh air and tumble overboard? And if that happened, where is Chuck? Why didn't he radio for help? Why didn't he help Lana? Why not call for help from their working cell phones, which were left on the boat? Again, where is Chuck Rutherford in all of this? Remember that when the boat was found and they began searching for Lana and Chuck, Lana's own family used her boat, Sea's Life, to search for her and Chuck in the days following their disappearance. If the boat was leaking fumes into the cabin, wouldn't her family have noticed that while they used the boat? After Lana's body was recovered, her family hired a professional to work with them. They wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to the missing couple. With Lana's body recovered and Chuck still missing, whispers stirred in the community. What if Chuck had something to do with Lana's disappearance? The Stempian family hired an attorney who specialized in reconstructing events around the disappearance of boaters. And listeners, Today, I learned that that's a thing. I had no idea there were people that do that. And this man, his name was Jack Cote. Cote is a fascinating man, and some of his previous work includes looking into the controversial 1993 disappearance of Detroit restaurateur Chuck Muir off the eastern coast of Florida. When Cote came in to work on the case, he was about 80 years old but there is likely no one more uniquely qualified to do the work that he did. Cote believed it is more likely that foul play was involved in the case. He pointed out that a lack of trauma does not mean a lack of violence. If Lana were pushed overboard in rough waters, her body would not show marks or bruises despite the violence involved in getting her off the boat. 
He also pointed to the blue bumpers being a clue that others may have been involved in whatever happened on Sea's life that August afternoon. Remember, when the boat was discovered, it was bobbing in the water among five-foot waves. The man who spotted it in the water and called it in, he reported seeing a set of blue bumpers trailing from the boat. Sea's life had white bumpers. Where did these blue bumpers come from? Who did they belong to? And why were they so close to Lana's boat? By the time the Coast Guard arrived at Sea's Life, the blue bumpers were gone. Another factor to consider is Lana's shoes. Lana's athletic shoe was found on the boat, quote, with a knob from her boat's GPS bracket strangely wedged in the sole. Cote said that, quote, if you took a hammer and tried to pound that in, you would have difficulty doing that. That's how forcefully the knob from the GPS was stuck in the sole of her shoe. Lana's cousin Tammy, she said that the Coast Guard agreed with Cote's assessment, saying, quote, the only way that knob could have been embedded in her shoe was with force. Lana's shoe also had a tear in the back of it. And listeners, I'm assuming that she was wearing simple white athletic shoes, like a pair of Keds or Vans. And one more thing, at 1.22 a.m., which was nearly 12 hours since Chuck or Lana had been in touch with anyone, the GPS tracking device on Sea's Life was activated. According to a story in Our Detroit Magazine, the GPS showed the boat being out in Lake Huron off Nine Mile Point. That's about a dozen miles from where Sea's Life would be discovered in the morning. When a forensic examination of the GPS device was performed, it was determined that some data was gone. When investigators consulted with the manufacturer, they learned that the data would only be missing if someone deleted it. That gives you a lot to think about, doesn't it? Was there a struggle on the boat leading to the tear in Lana's shoe and the knob being embedded in the sole? Where were Lana's clothes? What about the blue bumpers seen by the Good Samaritan who spotted the boat drifting that morning? And where is Chuck Rutherford? That was the million-dollar question. Where was Chuck? In the weeks following the recovery of Lana's remains, stories began surfacing about Chuck being an abusive partner, about him being someone that Lana was afraid of. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. How you view these stories, well, it depends on who you ask. One of Lana's bartender friends came forward to say that Lana once told him, quote, If anything ever happens to me, look at my boyfriend. Was this a serious statement, or was she being tongue-in-cheek? Some say she said this in regard to the Lacey Peterson case, and others say she was just joking around. Another person came forward, an attorney friend of Lana's. He said that he heard of an incident between Lana and Chuck where they were out for the evening with another couple. Chuck had a few too many to drink, and he became agitated. Lana told him to get it together, and he allegedly began swearing and calling Lana names. His behavior was escalating to the point that two Detroit police officers who happened to be nearby, they removed Chuck from the establishment. One of Lana's male friends reported that Lana intended to break things off with Chuck because she didn't see a future for the two of them. And I'm going to interject here. If you want to break things off with someone, you don't do it on the first half of a long weekend trip that has the two of you in close quarters for several hours. If Lana was going to break up with him, I think she would have done that on the way home from Mackinac, not on the way to Mackinac. And it's possible that Lana was impulsive and had the talk 
with him on the ride from Oscoda to Mackinac. Then things got out of hand. Then Chuck called a friend who happened to have a boat and could come get him off of Sea's Life in the middle of Lake Huron in choppy five-foot waters. Wait, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, not, not really. I find the breakup on the way to Mackinac because they didn't have a future together. I think that's a bit of a stretch. And while most of the information available on this case came from Lana's friends and family, Chuck's friends did speak up, and they said that Chuck was not a violent, nor was he a hot-tempered person. That's just not who he was. Remember how Lana's last phone call was allegedly to her Aunt Pat? And that's the last contact anyone had with her? Well, that's not exactly true. Dateline produced an episode on this case in 2006, and they learned that Lana's last call was to another man. On August 11th at 1.59 p.m., Lana left a message for a man that she knew, a man she intended to meet up with in a few weeks at a wedding that was being held on the East Coast, a wedding that Chuck was not joining her for. Her message stated, Hey, when you called me, I was in the middle of Lake Huron heading to Mackinac. I'm not really, really sure what day I'm going to get to Boston, but I was in the middle of the lake when you called, so I'm calling you back. I'll be in Mackinac probably in about an hour, so you can call me back. Bye. Again, depending on who you ask, this was someone Lana knew and was friends with, or this was someone Lana hoped to be romantically involved with. There were also people who said that Chuck didn't want Lana talking to this guy, and if he caught her on a call with him, he would have been angry and it could have led to a fight. And that's not the last of the theories on this case. Other theories include the idea that pirates came aboard their ship, and those pirates were the owners of the vanishing blue bumpers seen near Sea's Life. However, if there were pirates, why not take Lana's jewelry, including her expensive gold watch? Why leave cash behind in the wallets found on board? Also, this area, this part of northern Lake Huron, it's not exactly known for pirate activity. Another theory is that Chuck was a prosecutor, and that someone he sent away wanted revenge. So they got their own boat and followed the couple toward Mackinac looking for an opportunity to strike. I'm not sold on this one. There are much easier ways to get revenge on someone that doesn't involve a pursuit over hundreds of miles of the lake. Others say that maybe when Chuck and Lana stopped in Oscoda or at Presqu'ile, they came across someone who they had an altercation with, which led to a showdown on the water. And sure, this is possible. But the people they did interact with at these ports did not report anything unusual involving Sea's life. The death of Lana Stempion and the disappearance of Chuck Rutherford are an open investigation, but it is not active. Not without more information, and unless something new comes to light, we may never know what actually happened that day. Lana Stempion was laid to rest at Resurrection Cemetery in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Chuck Rutherford is missing, presumed drowned. Detective Sexton said that more than half of the people who drown in Lake Huron are never recovered. In August of 2006, the family of Charles Rutherford Jr. went to court to have him declared legally dead. During the hearing, Detective Sexton testified that he believes Chuck is dead. There has been no activity on his credit cards or his bank cards. There has been no sign that Rutherford could still be alive. 
Chuck's mother said that she spoke to her son every day, and the last time she heard from him was August 9th, 2005, the day before the ill-fated boat trip. The judge ruled that Charles Rutherford Jr. is deceased and the victim of a boating accident. The family of Lana Stempian was not pleased with this ruling, and in the months following the events of August 11th, 2005, things did not go well between the Rutherford and Stempian families. Remember, Lana had been living with Chuck in his house in Gross Point Farms. After the accident, the Rutherfords allegedly refused to grant the Stempians access to the house to retrieve Lana's belongings. From what I've heard, the two families continue to be at odds over the fate of their children. It's an unfortunate situation. But what do you think, listeners? Did Chuck Rutherford harm Lana and flee the boat, leaving Sea's life adrift in Lake Huron? Were there bad people on the water that day? People who intended to harm the couple? Or did high seas and rough water lead to a crisis on the boat that spilled both of her occupants overboard, leading to their deaths? We may never know the truth, and there are two families left devastated by the aftermath of this incident. At the time of his disappearance, Chuck Rutherford was six foot two, two 205 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have information on this case, please contact the Michigan State Police at 906-643-7582. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray, and Gray Multimedia handled our audio production. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.